Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am thrilled today to have Professor Steve Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas. And before I go over the rest of his resume, let me just say that being the Charles Allen Wright Chair is an un- it's just a great honor which Steve deserves because um, Charles Allen Wright, in my opinion, is one of the greatest federal court scholars of all time. Steve teaches federal courts and con law. Um, it's a great chair. Um, Steve graduated from Amherst College and Yale Law School. He clerked for both the Ninth and Eleventh Circuits, which is interesting. Um, he taught at American and Miami. He's written too many articles to possibly recount, too many blog posts to recount, uh, too many essays to recount. You can see his work everywhere in the New York Times um, and many other places. He appears on CNN regularly. Uh, his career has just, uh, I think, skyrocketed over the last, you know, five to ten years. Uh, and I'm tempted to ask you what David Letterman asked Tom Hanks after he won two Academy Awards in a row for Best Actor. Steve, how's your career going? <laughs> it's a sarcastic question. Um, I, 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 the problem, Eric, is that you and I both live in a world where, you know, terrible things in the real world are good for business. And and I would I would so much prefer, you know, things to be pretty quiet on the fronts that we care about. And I'd irrelevance would be a perfectly satisfying uh, uh, life goal for me at this point. You just won the award for the best opening line of any person on the 58 or 9 or 60. I don't know I've done podcasts. Think, <laughs> I love that. Yes, we both would be happier if we were less busy, not because we don't like the work, but because we don't like having to respond, I think, to what we have to respond to on a daily basis. Is that a fair summary of what you just said? Yeah, and, and just, I mean, I mean I just, where, where the discourse is and the, the sort of the issues we're facing are, you know, so much more fundamental and basic um, yes. than, than I'd hoped. Um, yes. <laughs> and we're fighting over things that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we never would have fought over. And that's, you know, that's, it keeps people like us busy, but it also is deeply depressing and soul crushing. It is dehumanizing in every way. And speaking of dehumanizing, so one of the things that um, you have been so excellent about over the last few years is this thing that lay people and lawyers and law professors and judges are calling the shadow docket. Um, and you have a forthcoming book coming out on it, which I think is going to be super duper important. Um, so let's just start at the beginning because there are some non-law professors, non-lawyers listening to this. What is the shadow docket? What is the thesis of your book? And why is all of this a big deal? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so uh, the term was coined, as you know, Eric, yeah. by uh, Chicago professor Will Bode um, in 2015. You know, it was coined not as a pejorative. It was coined to describe what Will, I think, rightly thought was a really important part of the work of the Supreme Court that gets very little academic attention and zero public attention, uh, which is the thousands and thousands of unsigned and typically unexplained orders that the Supreme Court hands down every year, um, the overwhelming majority of which are anodyne, right? I mean, the overwhelming majority of which are just sort of routine case management orders where we don't care that they're unsigned and right. unexplained. Um, right. And where it's just, you know, no, it just doesn't matter. Um, you know, ooh, Justice Kavanaugh gave a party more time to file a, a cert petition. <laughs> Stop the presses. Right. Um, so the term itself is just this catch-all umbrella term, basically for the negative space that isn't the merits docket, the 60 to 70 cases that the court decides each term and these big fancy opinions after, you know, oral arguments and multiple rounds of briefing. Um, and what Will was sort of starting to pick up on and what I think I've sort of taken and run with um, is the notion that how the court uses the shadow docket 
had had started to change in some interesting ways. Um, so when Will was writing in 2015, he was focused on the uptick in what we call summary reversals. Um, this is where at the certiorari stage, where a party is asking the Supreme Court to step in and review a lower court ruling, the court decides the whole case, right, right when it decides the petition. Um, and Will had picked up on this trend where there were more of those in the mid-2010s than there had been previously, and that these rulings were increasingly departing from the norms for those kinds of summary decisions in the past. Um, Steve, I'm sorry, just I back really up. Sort of, I'm sorry, Steve, yeah. just back up for... for that's a, that should be a rare occurrence, right? Then Supreme Court decides a case like in that context that way, right? We would hope. I mean, right? I mean, the you know a summary reversal, at least on the court's tradition, you know, traditional approach is supposed to be where the lower court's error was so obvious, right? Um, right, and and so sort of undisputed right. um, that there would be that nothing would be gained by setting the case for plenary review by having another round of briefing and arguments. Um, and yet we're seeing more and more of these summary reversals where the court's divided pretty sharply, um, which suggests that, you know, maybe it's not that obvious. Right. Um, so so that was what Will was focused on. Um, and that was, in many respects, I think, just the tip of the wave, um, because the the last five years really have seen a complete explosion in another part of the shadow docket, um, what Justice Alito at least refers to as the emergency docket. Um, and this is where, Eric, as you know, you know, early in litigation, before the case has been fully resolved, before we're in like the final appeal, um, a party either gets an injunction or doesn't get an injunction from a trial court. And then whoever's on the wrong side of that ruling goes right to the Court of Appeals and asks the Court of Appeals either to stay the injunction or to enjoin itself, right, right pending appeal. Um, to, to, to control what the status quo is going to be while the lawsuit unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, and historically, the Supreme Court was very reluctant to get involved at that stage. Like you would very seldom see the Supreme Court coming at the beginning of a lawsuit, either to stay a lower court injunction or to reach out itself and enjoin like a state or federal government official directly. Um, that has totally changed in the last five years. We have seen a stunning uptick in how often the Supreme Court is granting what we might call emergency relief um, early in litigation. And Eric, all the while, right, hewing to its norms, to its historical pattern of not generally providing an explanation, of not signing the order, so that you have these more and more of these orders that are affecting millions and millions of people that are coming down with no explanation from the Supreme Court. And that's when, you know, when I sort of get fired up about the shadow docket. That's the part of it that I think is the real shift and the real focus of recent uh, uh, commentary on it. Can, can you give a concrete example of maybe your, your I know there's probably a tie here, but your, your most detested shadow docket opinion or one of the most detested shadow docket most opinions detested. you've seen. I mean, wow. the Alabama case um, that I saw you write about in Slate is really bad in my view, but there are others too. Alabama is pretty close. I mean, so let me give you, let me give you two that yeah. I think are, or, or actually let me give you three, um, one that's bad on its own and the other two that are bad when you put them next to each other. Sure. Um, so you mentioned the Alabama redistricting case. So this was a decision in February of this year. Um, Alabama, like every state, is redrawing its congressional district maps in light of the 2020 census. Right. Um, Alabama has seven U.S. House districts um, and two different district courts, including one that had Trump appointees on it, right, right. Um, held that Alabama's proposed map violated the Voting Rights Act because of something called vote dilution, um, that Alabama had basically sort of 
um, divvied up the black population in Alabama to dilute their political power, where even though blacks represent, I think, a somewhere somewhere well north of 25% of the population of the state of Alabama, there was only one of the seven congressional districts, right, that had a black majority, a so-called majority-minority district. All right. Two different district courts held that this violated the Voting Rights Act. Um, Alabama goes to the Supreme Court and asks for a stay, the effect of which would be to put back into effect for the 2022 midterms the illegal congressional map. Right. Um, and the Supreme Court, with no analysis, with no majority opinion in a like four-sentence order, um, agrees and stays these two district court rulings, the effect of which is to allow Alabama to use this defective map right, in the 2022 midterms, which will, Eric, I think, I don't think it's controversial to say, which will give the Republicans one extra seat um, in the Alabama House delegation they would not otherwise have had. A fact um, that no doubt yeah. the Supreme Court justices knew about. No doubt. Um, but to sort of, to drive home why this is a special, it's not just that the court didn't give us any analysis. It's that there were lots of reasons to believe that what the court was really relying upon was a new reading of the Voting Rights Act, was actually right. changing the test for a vote dilution uh, claim under an older Supreme Court case amazingly called Jingles. Um, <laughs> and, and, and what's especially remarkable about that, so, so two different things I think are remarkable here. One, Chief Justice John Roberts, no fan of the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> to say the um, least. Right? <laughs> Who I think, Eric, is sympathetic to overruling Jingles, yeah, right? Um, Gingles, Jingles, it might be Gingles. Jingle, it's Jingles, but similar. it's okay. I like Jingles yeah, better, Jingles. even though I think it's Gingles. I was going to say, Jingles, Jingles has a better ring to it. It's yeah. like a Jingle. Yeah. Um, so Roberts, who's sympathetic to overruling Gingles, right, dissents. And why does he dissent? Because he says, that's something we do on the merits docket, right? The the question for us here is whether the district court erred. And given the laws of San Jose, the district court didn't err. So it was five to four, right, with Roberts joining the liberals in dissent. But also, Eric, this is where I think we really start to see the pernicious effects. Um, in your state of Georgia, right, 10 days after the Supreme Court's non-signed, non-explained decision right. in the Alabama case, you have a federal judge in Georgia considering a very similar vote dilution challenge to Georgia's proposed new maps. And the federal district judge says, I agree with the plaintiffs that these maps violate the Voting Rights Act under Gingles. Right. I agree that this is something that requires us to redraw the maps. There ought to be one more majority minority district in the Georgia congressional delegation. Again, right. likely to change one seat from Republican to Democratic control. Right. And then he says, but, you know, the Supreme Court just stayed a similar ruling by my friends in Alabama. And so if I'm doing my job as a federal judge, I have to give that ruling effect, which means I should not actually enjoin. Georgia's and maps. that judge is not wrong, sadly, I think. I mean, in that sense, you know. At the very least, Eric, right, there are there are lots of examples in the last few years of the Supreme Court yelling at lower court judges for not doing what the Georgia judge did. Right, exactly. And so here, right, so here we see, I think, the worst part of all of this, which is it's not just that the court is changing the law without explanation. It's that the court is either insisting or at least implicitly creating precedential effects that are binding other judges in other cases with different parties in a context in which historically the court said none of this is supposed to be precedential. Right. And Steve, if, and I want to get to your other two examples, but if you if you let me just to rant for a minute about Please. about the Alabama case, because it, 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 it hits, I've, I spent a lot of time in Alabama, I have family in Alabama. What is so disheartening, you, you began this podcast talking about how disheartening our jobs have become. Shelby County versus Holder, which everyone knows is the case where Justice Roberts wrote for the for the conservatives, um, gutting 
the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act, which came from, and that case came out of Alabama. Let me just say the history of intentional voter suppression in Alabama and Georgia is not something that can be debated. These cases aren't coming from other places where maybe we could have a more thorough debate over how bad it was in the past, right? Um, and, and, and in fact, in 2010, in Alabama, state officials were, were being uh, 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 bugged by the FBI for other crimes. And when they, these, these official state legislators in Alabama were talking, they talked about black people, quote, as aborigines. That's those, their words. And the racial hatred that these legislators had for black voters was just for there for everybody to see. What makes me so frustrated about the Alabama case is that it's from Alabama and Georgia too. When you know, it's just, it's like adding salt to the wounds. Is that a fair way to put that? Yes, I mean it, it, it's like it's 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 not just a world without Shelby County. It's almost the inversion of Shelby County. Yes, um, where the where, where the states with the most history of this kind of discrimination <laughs> yes. now have affirmative incentives. Yes. Um, to play fast, you know, I mean the the one takeaway from the Alabama case is every state gets one free, you know, illegal redistricting. Did this happen in Texas um, too? Didn't this happen in your state as well? Didn't the lower court yeah, find all and kinds? So, and, and all and, and and so Eric, all of this is is sort of re- so so again, like you know, if we had three hours, we could talk about whether <laughs> Gingles still makes sense, right? The the conservative objection is that the technology that exists today, right, provides a mechanism for states to avoid the problems that the court was worried about in Gingles, which I think was like a mid nineteen eighties decision. Like yep. you know, there's there could be room for a reasonable disagreement about whether Gingles ought to be revisited. The point is that the court chose to revisit it on the shadow docket. Right. Um, right. And they chose to do it in a context in which, you know, lower courts are left, first of all, in which there's no real public visibility, right, right? in which the order comes down randomly in the middle of the day. Or right? night. It was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Or Monday. night sometimes. Or night, right? We've got some at 11 o'clock at night or 2 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Um, and where, like, Eric, you and I are left to speculate about exactly <laughs> what, you know, what's going on in these cases. Now, at least in that case, which is called Merrill versus Milligan, um, the court granted cert. And so they're going to actually take up the merits question, you know, this fall. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, in, in this case, the sin is temporary. But I think the, the, the other case I want to mention is the, these religious liberty cases from California, um, where the court changed the law on a permanent basis. So, you know, there's a case called Tandon versus Newsom, um, which the court decided about a year ago, last April, um, where uh, a bunch of uh, sort of a, a couple of, of pastors um, we're challenging California's restrictions on in-home gatherings during the COVID pandemic on the ground that it prevented them from conducting Bible study or other religious um, gatherings in their home. Um, and California's defense was, we have limited all in-home gatherings, like, you know, whether it's religious <laughs> or secular or whatever, whether it's, you know, no in-home gathering can have members of more than three households. How could that be a free exercise problem? Yeah. Um, and the Supreme Court in this late Friday night, five to four decision, this time at least they wrote a couple pages. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court sided with the challengers, um, holding that the free exercise clause was violated because California had provided an exception, a secular exception without a corresponding religious exception. Basically what's known as the most favored uh, nation reading of the free exercise clause. Um, again, Eric, we could debate the, the merits and the wisdom of the most favored nation theory. It was first advanced by my colleague Doug Laycock in 1990. You know, there's more than nothing to be said for it. But the court adopted it um, in a context in which it was only supposed to be able to grant relief if the plaintiff's claims were, quote, indisputably clear. Um, <laughs> that is to say, right, if it was clear 
based on existing law that what the state was doing was unconstitutional. And everyone agrees that in tandem, the court made new law. So right. how could you justify doing that on the shadow docket as opposed to on the merits docket? Contrast that with the SB8 decision, right, on September 1st, when the same five justices, the exact same 5-4 split, it's the conservatives minus Roberts versus Roberts and the liberals, um, when they refused to intervene to block uh, Texas's controversial ban on abortions after six weeks from going into effect. And the little paragraph that the majority wrote says, we have some procedural questions about whether this lawsuit <laughs> could even go forward. Never mind that these same five justices had run right over not a procedural question, but a procedural obstacle in tandem. And so this is why I think when Justice Kagan, in her dissent in that from that case, says every day the shadow the court shadow docket decision making becomes more unreasoned, more inconsistent, and more impossible to defend, you know, I, I think she's onto something. And, and thank you, Steve. That that's an awesome litany. And by the way, we if we had three hours, we could talk about you know, 15, 20 other really important cases on the shadow docket. I, is it fair to point out do you think that um, let's take Justice Roberts at his word when he is joining the liberals in all cases, in these cases, I mean, uh, let's take him at his word. A number of them, yeah. The only reason that many of these cases, especially the religion cases, are coming out the way they are is because Justice Barrett was rammed through the Senate at the very last minute before the 2020 election in complete contrast to how Merrick Garland was stonewalled from taking a seat for 10 months prior to the 2016 election. And that Mitch, uh, that McConnell move, which we can't blame the Supreme Court for, but that McConnell-Trump kind of move is a big explanation for why we are where we are if we take Roberts and his word. Is that fair? So it's fair. I mean, I, I would add a couple layers to it, Eric. I, mean, sure. I, I don't think anything you said is wrong. Um, I, you know, I, as you said, I'm writing a book about yeah. this. And, and you really do see... This this phenomenon start to accelerate even when Justice Ginsburg was still on the court. Okay. I mean, the you know Roberts is a fascinating figure, and we should talk about him. But he's not fully against this project. Sure, um, sure. And so and so right. So so there are a number. I mean, the, the the Trump administration cases are a really good example of where Roberts routinely sides with the other conservatives in newfangled forms of emergency relief. Right. Um, so that had you know. So I actually think the real moment is not. Barrett's confirmation, it's Kavanaugh's, okay. um, because I think Justice Kennedy, not surprisingly, had a moderating effect yes. um, on when <laughs> yes. the court was and was not going to grant emergency relief. Um, Kavanaugh has not. And so I think you really see the volume pick up when Kavanaugh is confirmed. And then what Barrett's confirmation does is it takes the wheel, it takes the wheels off um, or it takes the brakes off. Right. Yeah. Where where now all of a sudden. You know, you've got five justices who have no procedural constraints. Um, right. And so the, the chief's a great example here. The, Eric, we saw at the end of last term a lot of stories about how Barrett's confirmation had not had as big of an impact on the court as people were expecting. Um, and that required completely ignoring the shadow docket because, yep. you know, there were any number of huge cases where the chief had gone with the liberals and where I think we can assume that had Ginsburg still been around, that would have been a majority instead of a dissent. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, the data bear this out. I mean, as of today, as we're talking, there have been, I think, nine decisions by the Supreme Court since Barrett was confirmed where the chief is on the short side of a 5-4. That's amazing. Nine? Um, that many? Nine. Wow. Um, in, in eight of those nine, he joined the liberals. Wow. Um, and in seven of those eight, 
it was on the shadow docket. So, you know, we're seeing the chief over and over again saying, guys, I'm sympathetic on the merits, but this is not how we do, right? This is not what we're supposed to do. Um, and I think, you know, Eric, people are going to disagree about whether the chief's being altruistic yes. or whether this is actually his own appreciation that if he has this long-term ideological agenda, the shadow docket actually is a threat to that because of a, how much, you know, sort of legitimacy concern it raises right. about the court. But whether the chief's hands are clean or not, I mean, I think it is really revealing that this is not just a partisan fight. This is not just, you know, liberals looking for other ways to criticize the conservatives. John Roberts himself is standing up and saying something is wrong. And the best example of that is the Clean Water Act case, right, early in April, when Roberts again joins the three liberals in dissenting, but Eric, for the first time, joins the opinion dissenting, right. where Kagan calls out the majority for abusing the shadow docket. And I think, you know, if you've lost John Roberts, <laughs> that ought to be a canary in a coal mine um, to a much greater degree than I think it has been for other conservatives. Um, Steve, I have a couple of reactions. Thank you for that. I have a couple of reactions to it, um, one of which, well, I'd be curious your reaction to this. And, and we're going to take a bigger picture now uh, about the chief. Because I think the chief, I just wrote a law review article about him for um, – Washington Lee, and I've been studying him for a long time. I find him a fascinating figure. People know that in 1981, as a young buck in the Justice Department, he wrote several memos, you know, antagonistic to the Voting Rights Act. Um, what I want to ask you about Roberts is um, the narrative after he voted with the liberals to uphold Obamacare in the very first case, even though he did it under the taxing power, not the Commerce Clause power was he did that, and we do now know, I think, with reasonable certainty, he changed his mind at the last minute. I think that's fairly well accepted. Um, and that's fair, by the way. People should agonize. You know, Justice Kennedy famously agonized on the eve of Casey. What should I do? What, I mean, that's fair. I want our judges to agonize. That's fair. But what I want to say is there are some people who think that this is win-win for Roberts. He gets the conservative results he wants while dissenting from them so history will record him as being against what you have so um, elegantly described as this aggressive shadow docket. But were he not given the protection of knowing there are five votes on the other side, he might well have gone the other way. Um, and I got to say, I have some limited sympathy for that narrative. I mean, this goes back to whether we think the chief is being altruistic or not. Yeah. Um, there's some evidence that suggests that this is not just because he's no longer the median vote. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we go back to before Barrett's confirmation, when he was the median vote. Right. Um, right. There's this there's a two year period between Kavanaugh's confirmation and Barrett's confirmation where everyone agrees the chief is the median. Right. Yep. On almost everything that matters. Yep. And, you know, he's not always joining the liberals on the shadow docket in those cases, Eric. But yep. he's not never joining them either. So one example. Um, folks might remember when President Trump criticized uh, the Obama judge, yes. right, who blocked the first asylum ban. Yeah. Um, well, the Supreme Court refused to stay yep. that injunction, and it was five to four, and the chief joined the liberals. Yeah. Um, right. Fast forward to the summer of 2020, right? The first COVID religious liberty case was a case from California called South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom. South Bay won, because uh, there actually were, have been three South Bay decisions. Um, and in South Bay won, also five to four, no injunctive relief with the chief writing a concurrence when it was clear 
that his vote was the was the dispositive one. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't think that that proves that his motives are benign from from the perspective of those who are skeptical of him. I think it just complicates the story Agreed. Um, that we have at least some data points for cases where the chief is, you know, siding with the liberals when it counts. Um, and not just when it might just be dismissed as as optics. Fair. And I, I also should say, Steve, and I, I think you will agree with this, I am not minimizing how hard it would be to be the chief justice of the United States for as long as he's been the chief justice, even you know for a short period of time. And people do forget that Supreme Court justices are human beings like the rest of us. And well, I know you're a parent. Right. I know you're a parent. And we have tough parenting decisions all the time, right? I mean, you know. Um, and we... Were we to describe our motivations for those parents? I had one this morning, frankly. I had a very tough issue. and um, I can tell you why I think I did what I did, but I, that's not necessarily why I did it because there's a lot going on in my mind in those moments. And I'm sure that's true for the chief and, and all the justices to some degree. And I think that's – so I, I, I – is that a fair – I mean, I'm sure he's conflicted about a lot of this stuff too, right? So, so I think that's right, Eric. I think that's a really savvy and insightful point. Um, I think it's also worth stressing, even before he was confirmed, right, yeah. I think the notion that he had institutional bona fides, that he was interested in the court as an institution to a larger degree than perhaps any of the other conservatives on the court, yep. right, would not have surprised anyone who knew him. Yes. Um, right. But there's also, so, you know, my dean, Ward Farnsworth, has this quote um, that, I, that I come back to a lot. And if you don't mind, I'd love to share it. Sure, yeah. Um, so he was, this, this is a piece he wrote after Bush versus Gore. And he said... Those who accuse the majority of having partisan motives underestimate the good faith of the justices. But those who acquit the court of partisan behavior <laughs> may overestimate the utility of good faith as a constraint on wishful thinking. I love that quote, right? Steve. I love that quote. And, and it's like, it, you know, I, 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 think, I think we can we can, we can can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, it is possible to say that even if we assume good faith on the part of the justices, the behavior here is problematic. Um, yeah. And the the appearance that 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 arises from this behavior is deeply problematic. And so, you know, one does not. I mean, I, I I'm sure some of the folks listening just automatically assume bad faith on the part of some of the justices, and that's fair. But even for someone like me who doesn't, right? Right. Part of the point is to convince you that you can believe both that the justices are doing their best based on their personal commitments, and that in this context, that's not good enough. That's well said. And, and and just to throw in just a little personal stuff here, um, you know, I don't know how I would act were I given virtually unreviewable power for life. Um, I often mention that I, I, we had a – I love our current dean. This is not a reflection of like the current dean of my law school. But we had a dean for 13 years, Steve Kamenschein, who just had my closest friend. And, and, and Steve was an amazing dean, got us a new building during the recession, all this stuff. Um, if someone – and I totally loyal to Steve in every way. If somebody had said, let's give him his job for life with no review by the provost, the president, or the board of regents, I would say, no, that would change my friend because my friend's human. And, and people always, you know, I know I'm a very harsh critic of the Supreme Court, um, and I come off as sometimes a harsh critic of the justices. But what I really believe is the institution itself, as you know, has some real deep flaws in it. And one of them is giving governmental officials a lot of power for life. You and I have a job for life. We have no power. You have a little power, but I have no power. But, but we have very little power. You can influence on CNN and stuff, but we really have no power. They have actual power. I don't begrudge any human being the conflicts that would arise from that institutional role. Is that a fair? Is that a fair? 
I, yeah, I mean, and, and, and again, I mean, that's not to say that I am assuming good faith on right. their part. Like, I just right. don't know. And and, I, and, right. and 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 one of the things that I've tried really hard to do, Eric, in my commentary on the shadow docket is to resist the charge that I'm just doing it because I'm a pissed off progressive. <laughs> right. Um, right. Right. Um, you know, I, I have I like to think that my, you know, 17 years of scholarship yeah. suggests that there are some broader structural principles that I've applied consistently, regardless of who's been in charge yes. of which branch. Yes. Um, but the other, but you know, even if you are sympathetic to everything the court's doing in these cases, you should still be troubled by the way the court is doing it because yes. you know, for those who actually, and, and this is where I think John Roberts again becomes the story. I mean, this is a, a bit of a spoiler alert, but like my book, um, right, the 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 conclusion is all about John Roberts. Um, right. That's great, and, and and for for this exact reason that you know. It doesn't matter whether Roberts' motives are benign or not, right? The, the fact that he's standing up and saying, guys, something has gone, you know, something is rotten in Denmark um, ought to be a pretty powerful sign that whatever we think about the court shadow docket behavior, it should not just divide us along the typical, you know, the typical camps. The yeah, typical and, and Steve, I, I also want to say, and I hope this doesn't embarrass you, um, you know, I've been doing this 32 years, um, almost twice as long as you have. I knew you at the beginning of your career. You, I knew your work, and I always respected it deeply. I, you've always, I think, been one of the fairest critics. I mean, you have a deep progressive streak, no doubt. Um, but um, for people listening, um, Steve is not like me <laughs> in the sense that um, Steve goes out of his way, I think, and this is what you should do, to make the best out of things and to figure out, you know, what – so. Um, your criticism of the shadow docket, I think, should not be dismissed by anybody as some kind of partisan reaction. Um, and, and frankly, I, I'm the, I was criticizing the court when I thought Obama could put you know, all his judges on it. Um, I think we come in this in the same direction in that sense, that my critique of the court's never been partisan. It's just of the institution. But you've always had a very measured approach to this, which is why people, A, need to read your book, The Shadow Docket, and B, listen to you whenever you speak. Um, one last question about The Shadow Docket. Um, What's your answer? Is, is there a structural fix? Is it just is it just incentivizing them to do better behavior? Like, what can we do? Um, <laughs> I, so it, it's a good question. And, and if I had the answer, I'd be a rich man. Um, <laughs> the, the short version is, I, I really think the first step is is to get it out of the shadows. I mean, I, you know, I, I, yeah. I've, I'm committed to making this a big thing because I think the more visible it is, the more pressure the justices will feel to you know, change some of their behavior themselves. Um, right. And we've seen some of that this term. I mean, we saw in the Texas um, prayer in the execution chamber case, Ramirez, right. we saw the court kick back from the shadow docket to the merits docket, where as recently as a year and a half ago, they might have decided on the shadow docket. Right. Um, we've seen the court hold oral argument on the emergency applications in the OSHA and CMS vaccine cases, right? Something the court hadn't done on an emergency application since the 1970s. Right. Um, Right. We've seen, you know, in March, a proposed change to the court's rules that would for the first time normalize the practice of filing amicus briefs um, respecting emergency applications. So, you know, I think the justices are paying attention, Eric, but like the first thing to do is to keep forcing them to pay attention. Yeah. Um, yep. If that's not enough, I mean, if the court's not going to be persuaded based on all of that, that like they've got to start, you know, changing their behavior. Um, there's this crazy institution out there called the United States Congress. Wait, well, who is that? Um, Wait, what, that, who, who? What? I, I know. <laughs> uh, I, we forget about them sometimes. Um, but, but, you know, Eric, this is where, I mean, you teach federal courts and you know this as well as anybody. Yeah. Like there is historically such a richer interbranch dialogue 
um, between the courts and the political branches about the role of the courts, about the Supreme Court's docket specifically, yep. uh, about the shape and structure of the court's docket. And we saw, I mean, from really the 1870s all the way to the 1980s, regular back and forths where, you know, something would get out of kilter and Congress would respond or the court itself would go to Congress and say, help us with this. And Congress would help them. Um, the Judiciary Act of 1925, right. right, which is, you know, the landmark bill that gives the Supreme Court certiorari jurisdiction over a large swath of cases is known as the judge's bill right. because it's written by and lobbied for by like Taft. Right. So, you know, I, I think that the larger part of the story is with public attention, hopefully comes renewed revitalization of a healthy interbranch conversation where Congress does not just think that its job is to fund the courts and otherwise leave them alone. Because I think that's, you know, that's part of what's responsible indirectly, right, for how the court has been able to claim so much, so much power in the space. I think that's a great point. And actually, I think it transcends the relationship between the courts and Congress. When Roosevelt, uh, when, the, when the executive branch wanted to deal with the, the Great Depression and create the administrative state we live in today, what the president really did is went to Congress and said, give me authority to, to, to create this you know, delegate me the authority to do it and actually gave them a legislative veto back to say, if you don't like it, which we know he can't do anymore. But that isn't the point. The president and Congress worked together with, with Congress placing very broad parameters and the president taking it from there. There's no reason Congress can't do that with the court. And by the way, as, you, as you, I think you know, I think Congress should do that with cameras in the court, with the court's papers that we don't see for, you know, 50, 70, 80, 80 years after they resign. Um, ethics rules? Ethi well, yeah, that, and the big one, of course. Uh, I got a memo today from my friend that at Fix the Court saying that, that a bill is going to come out of this, I think. You know, but yet, of course, I th I've never met a person from, from Randy Barnett, who's you know, a very different political person than you and I, to, to Erwin Chemerski, to everybody who doesn't think the court shouldn't have binding ethical rules. I mean, it, how can our highest court not have binding ethical rules? <laughs> All right. Um, Steve, thank you. The, the, the shadow docket stuff is great. When your book comes out, you know, certainly we'll promote it and um, everybody should read it. Now, you and I are common in one other way, which is we're both con law people, but kind of federal court nerds. Is that a fair? Is that so? So so just for those non-lawyers listening, there's, the, you know, we teach constitutional law, which is separation of powers and federalism. And then we get to the 14th Amendment and due process, equal protection. There's a free speech seminar at most schools or you throw it into, well, then there's a whole separate course called Federal Courts of Federal Jurisdiction. In fact, Charles Allen Wright, your, the name of your chair, is maybe the most famous federal court scholar of all time, possibly top five anyway. Um, so I want to get into something that's going to sound to people maybe a little bit inside baseball, but it truly isn't. Um, and I tell my, I told my students this. I taught um, – we're going to talk about the Bivens Doctrine, which you're going to explain to everybody in a second. Just yesterday, I told my students, you're one of the country's leading experts on this. When I have issues on it, I, I've written you privately, as you know, several times, saying, help me with this. Um, Bivens is, I think, actually more important than people think. So can you just describe what Bivens was, now what it is, and then what you think it ought to be? And this is a little nerdy, but but forgive us. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, Eric, it's consistent with the shadow docket stuff. I mean, right? Okay. I think you and I both have spent a lot of our careers trying to, you know, translate legalese for popular yes. audiences. Yes. I mean, right? Your your work on originalism, your work on the Supreme Court, I Thank think, you. is really very much meant to sort of help people see things that the lawyers understand, but the popular audiences don't. Yes. Um, so Bivens is a good example of this. So let's start from sort of what ought to be an uncontroversial proposition. Um, <laughs> if a federal officer violates your constitutional rights. 
should you have a remedy? <laughs> right? If you frame it that way, I like to think that the average person on the street would say, of, yes, duh, obviously. And in Where fact, 38 of my 40 students said that yesterday. Of course. What's the, what's the problem here? Ooh, two, two of them didn't? Yeah, well, long story. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, knew, they, knew, they knew where this was going. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court, um, for really the better part of 200 years, um, regularly allowed damages lawsuits against federal officers when federal officers had violated our rights um, under state common law. Right. Um, and this was deeply consistent with the founding era understanding. The founding era understanding... <laughs> was that the principal mechanism for holding the federal government accountable was going to be state courts, right. uh, not federal courts. I mean, this is, speaking of famous law professors, this was Henry Hart's principal thesis yes. um, in his famous law review article where he was talking to himself. Um, <laughs> the, the, you know, that you, was By the, the way, when you're that famous, you can do that. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, it's, it's yeah. one of the, I mean, I, I think it's one of the most famous law review articles in public law Me like, too. that exists, right? Me too, yeah. Um, I mean, if, you, if you want to find it, folks, it's, it's Congress's power to limit the jurisdiction of the federal courts, colon, an exercise in dialectic. Yes. Um, <laughs> from, I think, the 1953 Harvard Law Review. Yeah. Um, so, so the model was, as you, Eric, know very well, right, state torts for federal officers. And so, you know, a federal officer, a customs officer, right, busts down your door without a warrant. You do them for trespass. Yeah. Um, and the officer would defend and say, I was acting under color of law. And you would say, no, you weren't because you violated the Fourth Amendment. Right. Um, and this was the model for state damages suits against federal officers well into the 20th century. Um, by the 1960s, for fairly obvious reasons, the model had become flawed. Um, right. Flaw number one was that it just seemed wildly inefficient to subject federal officers to 50 different state tort regimes. Um, but problem number two is, you know, the Supreme Court was recognizing more and more constitutional rights that didn't have common law analogs. Um, so, you know, free speech, right? When federal officers violate your free speech rights, not really clear what the state tort is. Um, when you are discriminated against on the basis of race or sex, not really clear what the state tort <laughs> in, is. In Georgia, there is none, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> and so, and so, but this is this was the problem. And so, you know, Bivens is in many respects a reaction to that problem, which is that, you know, in Bivens itself, Webster Bivens has his apartment broken into by six um, federal narcotics officers, the, the Bureau of Narcotics, the forerunner to today's uh, DEA. Um, and, you know, he wants damages. He can't get any other remedy. The, the search has happened. An injunction is not going to help him. They didn't find anything. So it's not like he can move to suppress evidence. He was strip searched. Case. He was strip searched. Too. Right. That's right. I mean, the, he want, and so the only remedy he could have is damages. Yep. Um, and the Nixon administration did not argue that he wasn't entitled to damages. The Nixon administration argued that his remedy was a trespass claim under New York state law. And Brennan writing for what's basically like a five to one to three court um, says no, uh, right? That this is a context where it actually makes much more sense to have a federal rule, to, to have the federal constitution itself be the source of a cause of action for damages, because state law is not usually going to be adequate. Um, I will say I am much more partial to Justice John Marshall Harlan's concurrence. You and me both. Um, you and me both. Yep. Bivens. Yep. Um, not surprisingly, Harlan has the better analytical hook yep. on yep. this problem. Yep. Um, and what Harlan says is, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We're making this way too hard. We have already recognized for over 100 years the power of federal courts 
to enjoin right. federal officers when they act unconstitutionally, even though no statute authorizes it. Right? Yeah. Um, therefore, Harlan says, whether we can award damages is not a question of our power. We have the power. Like of course. That, that, it's a question of what is the appropriate relief given the power that we have. Um, and so for Harlan, right, Harlan ties Bivens and the damages cases to the much longer pre-existing line of cases where we could go and sue federal officers for injunctions with no statutory cause of action. Right. And I think if that had been the majority opinion, this whole story would have been different. And one more thing, Steve. Harlan says, yeah. um, in a way that it would appeal to the person on the street who's not a lawyer, it's damages or nothing for Webster Bivens. I mean, had he gone to trial and they tried to use a confession or something, at least we could say, well, but no, since they never charged him, it was yep. damages or nothing. And you started off by and saying- so we should have damages. You started off by saying we've recognized forever that when a federal yeah. officer violates your rights, you should have some remedy. But for Webster Bivens, there was no remedy. And that's basically what Harlan said. And, 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 and so that's why I think if, if Harlan's opinion had been the majority, it would have been harder to, to, yeah. to pare it back. Um, All right. So that's the good news. The, before, before, right. So before we get to sort of the bad part, yeah. um, one of the, so Harlan says in Bivens that for Bivens, it's damages or nothing. And yeah. he's right. Yeah. The irony is that at least in Bivens, right, damages were theoretically available under both federal law and New York state law. Right. Today, for reasons we'll talk about, it's Bivens or nothing. Right. Um, which is even worse. Yes. Um, so, okay. So Bivens, Bivens is part of a series of decisions wrongly attributed to the Warren court. Since Bivens is 1971, it is a Burger court decision. Yes. Like Roe. Um, like, like Roe versus Wade. Like, and like Furman versus Georgia. I mean, yeah. I, like I, I think of Bivens, Furman, and Roe as like the holy trinity of yep. mis misattributed yes. um, yes. non-Warren court decisions. Yes. Um, so in the 80s and 90s, right, when we see this dramatic shift in the center of gravity on the Supreme Court and when we see the rise of the conservative legal movement, you know, one of the hallmarks of that movement is hostility to judge-made causes of action and basically the notion that you know, the separation of powers is offended when courts are providing remedies that the political branches have not chosen to provide. Um, now, Harlan has exactly the right response to this in, in Bibbins. Harlan says it would be a little anomalous <laughs> if the constitutional rights, the whole purpose of which is to restrain the political branches, were only, you know, dependent entirely upon the whim of the political branches to provide for their enforcement. Um, C'est la vie. So we see this run of cases started in the 80s and 90s where the Supreme Court slowly but surely pulls back on implied, on non-statutory causes of action across a whole range of contexts, and Bivens is one of them. Um, at the same time, Congress in 1988, in a little-known statute called the Westfall Act, um, gets rid of the old state tort claims so that what was the alternative for Bivens is now no longer even available. And so today, we have a court that thinks that Bivens is almost never appropriate um, when there's no alternative. Um, and so, as you know, I mean, I, I argued a case in the Supreme Court a couple of years ago called Hernandez versus Mesa. That's a heartbreaking, um, it's a heartbreaking case, Steve, in my view. I mean, I, they all are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so Sergio Hernandez was a 15-year-old Mexican national who was shot and killed while playing with friends in the culvert along the Rio Grande, along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, he shot and killed by a U.S. CBP agent standing on U.S. soil. Um, the CBP agent claimed that he was attacked. There is cell phone camera video to the contrary, um, right? But so Sergio's parents want 
a damages remedy. Um, ironically, this might be surprising. Texas law um, has a wrongful, an extraterritorial wrongful really? death cause of action. Wow. Um, that, but for the Westfall Act, would have been available um, in 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 Hernandez. So he sues under Bivens. He says, guys, listen, Agent Mesa violated the Fourth Amendment, right? Um, there are no good, you know, he wasn't enforcing any policy. He just acted ultra virus. He was, you know, it was excessive force, the heartland of Bivens. I should, I should have a claim. And the Supreme Court by a 5-4 vote said no. Um, right, relying on the fact that it was national security, it was at the border, you know, things that were not actually relevant to the facts of the case, but the court relies on them anyway. Um, as you know, Eric, the court has a case, this term called Egbert versus Boulay, um, which is also a CBP case, but now it's an American citizen who was the victim, and it was inside the U.S. border. Right. Um, and so we'll see if what's we'll see if much is left of Bivens when the court decides Egbert. What, what I don't want to get lost in the weeds, though, is how far we've come from Bivens itself, where it was federal law in lieu of state law. Now it's federal law or nothing. And so when the court hands down these decisions, they say no Bivens. Um, they're saying immunity, right? I mean, and this is so, you know, when I when I did my rebuttal argument in Hernandez, this was the point I closed on that, you know, for all of the debate we have over qualified immunity, I know you've talked about this on the pod before, yeah. right? But for all the discussion of reform to qualified immunity, the absence of a cause of action is a form of absolute immunity. Because if there's no cause of action, you can't get in the court in the first place. Yeah. And so what the court has done through its Bivens cases is it has conferred what is basically de facto absolute immunity on the vast majority of federal law enforcement officers, no matter how egregious their constitutional violations might be. And that ought not to be something that we find satisfying, regardless of our ideological or political commitments. Thanks. It's a great recital. And on that last point, I, I, I was talking to my, my friend Mike Dorf about this. Mike teaches at Cornell and clerk for Justice Kennedy, and people know who Mike is. Um, uh, we were talking about Justice Harlan, and I was talking to Mike because Justice Harlan had such an obvious influence on Justice Kennedy who obviously had an incredible influence on America. But the point I want to make about Bivens, Steve, is um, I think it'd be hard, we'd be hard-pressed, right, to find a law, any law professor, from the most conservative to down the middle to the most progressive, who don't think Justice Harlan is just a universally recognized good judge or great judge. I mean, depend, no one, I mean, people love Scalia, people like me hate Scalia. People love O'Connor, people like O'Connor. Harlan is just well-regarded, right? I had that, Mike thought that, and you think that, right? And 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 he was very moderate, and he was very balanced, and, and I don't agree with everything he ever did. And he did some very conservative things, like in Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. But when he spoke, I listened. <laughs> and, his, and as you said, his opinion in Bivens is so well-reasoned. I can't even find reasonable ways to disagree with it. I mean, it was damages or nothing, right? I mean— I, I, I think any, any list of the of the five smartest justices, yeah. right? Regardless yeah. of like, you know, but Susan, who's your favorite justice? Like, well, you know, favorite like who I want to have a beer with, right? Like, favorite who, you know, <laughs> right? Um, like Harlan, Harlan, he 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 was a judge's judge. Yes, um, right. I mean, I, you know, I think about this when I teach retroactivity in the habeas context, where you know we now operate under a framework that was initially proposed by then just, you know, by Justice Harlan. Right. Um, and, you know, there are things about that framework I don't like, and there are ways that I think the court has gone far away from what Harlan intended. Right. But Harlan's formulation of it was such a deeply principled judicial act where he was basically taking a problem 
explaining the problem, explaining what he viewed as the competing considerations, and proposing a solution that he thought best balanced, right, right the costs and the benefits. And, you know, we don't have that kind of justice on the Supreme Court anymore. Yeah. And, I, and I think I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think I, for the book and for another project, I've been reading a lot about the sort of the, the burger court, the early burger court. And I think a lot about what the court would look like today if we had a Harlan or a Potter Stewart right, um, right, right. on the court today. Because or, or, we, or even a white black or suitor. Right, even a white black man or suitor. They were all moderates, if not conservatives, by right. those standards. Right, right. And today, I think they would be to the left of perhaps even Justice Breyer. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I, this is why I, one of the hardest things I struggle with, and Eric, I, I wonder if you struggle with it as, as well, when going out and talking to popular audiences, like the court's sort of evisceration of Bivens ought to be deeply offensive. Um, as, a, as an act of judicial power and as an act of judicial power at the expense of the rights of individuals. And it just doesn't resonate. I mean, I even though, you know, I've, I've written op-eds about this. Like I've, you know, I've given, I mean, I've tried very hard to say, hey, your rights are not enforceable. And I wonder if it's just because too many people don't imagine circumstances in which their rights are gonna be violated. Um, in which, you know, sort of violations of rights are someone else's problem. Therefore, the absence of remedies is not something I lose sleep over. And it's just like, that's such an unsatisfying place to be in, from my perspective. Yeah, I think part of I, I agree, Stephen. I, I do have that issue, and I, I think part of it is to the so my, my target audience for my work is the informed non-lawyer in a lot of cases. You know, people who 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 really want to learn about news but aren't. You know, and I think to the informed non-lawyer, abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance reform, and the Second Amendment. They don't have capacity for much else, right? I mean, those are four huge, everyday, in-your-face headline issues. To get them to focus on what you're talking about, which is so important, I, I don't have the rhetorical ability to do it. I've, I've learned that because I've tried, too. And, and, I've, and I've even talked about you in the context of Bivens, too. Uh, and I, I have trouble getting people to really... They want to hear about gun control. You know, and they want to hear about abortion. So, so I don't know. One more thing about Harlan and federal court nerd alert out there. Um, this is one of those things. Um, Harlan's uh, dissenting opinion in Flass versus Cohen is a fantastic example of, of what you're talking about, um, which, by the way, is also actually relevant. About ta right, taxpayer standing. Yeah, and it, but it's relevant to what you're saying about Bivens, too, because the issue in that case is can citizens and taxpayers sue the federal government just because they think the Constitution is being violated? And it's a hard question, and I've, I've spent a lot of my career writing about that question. I litigated that question. I, Harlan's response was, we can do it. The court's response has been basically no. They can't, citizens can't do that, with one exception, too nerdy to go into. But Harlan's response was, and I thought it was thoughtful, Article 3 doesn't bar this. We could do this. Whether we should or not is a more complicated question. Again, the nuance, you know? And so I think one of the reasons Harlan. Harlan, Harlan hasn't survived as an icon, which he should, is he talked in nuance. The Amer it's hard to transcribe, right? And, 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 you know, boy, could we use a little bit of John Marshall Harlan the second right about now. Oh, I, my God. I yes. wouldn't mind some John Marshall Harlan the first two, but, but you know. <laughs> right. I um, and, and I think, and, and this, I think, is, is I mean, in that, in that respect, I mean, this is, I think, Eric, a really elegant theme, right, to our entire conversation, which is that, you know, the law really needs Harlan's. Yes. And yet we're stuck with, you know, the sort of. I mean, depending upon your perspective, the the you know the Gorsuch or the Sotomayor, right? Um, yep. And and you know, there's value to that too, but we need them all. 
and and increasingly we've got the latter and not the former. Yeah, and that was was behind my whole thing in 2016 of freezing the court at four Republicans and four Democrats. My motivation for that was simply we'll get more moderate, narrow, nuanced, fact-based yeah. decisions. Anyway, Steve, we only have like five minutes left, and 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 there's something I really want to talk to you about. It's selfish on my part. I admit my selfishness here, but because um, I, I walk a line every day, and you do too, and, and and it's one that more and more law professors are walking, um, which is the line between being a committed scholar, which you are clearly, um, a committed teacher, wrong order. Committed, my, in my mind, it's committed teacher first, committed scholar second, committed member of my community, you know, my university community third, and then fourth, this whole public persona through this podcast, through my blogging with Mike Dorff, through being on various radio, and, and you've been doing tremendous your amount TikToks. of TikToks. Eric, don't forget your TikToks. And my TikToks, yes. I keep forget. I keep trying to forget those. That's for my teenage daughter. But anyway, <laughs> um, Steve, you, you're everywhere. You're on, you know, national security blogs and CNN and all these things. Um, and I, even I, and I, I know I'm thought of as a hothead by many people, even I pull back sometimes from what I really, I have not really told the truth about Justice Thomas the way I want to tell it, because I'm afraid a little bit of what that will look like coming from a scholar, um, as opposed to if I was a pure pundit, I would, I would. Um, how do you walk that line? Do you think about that line? Is this something that, that am I alone in, in being you know, kind of obsessed with this line, or, or is this something that you wrestle with too? Uh, not only do I wrestle with Eric, I, I would say in one respect, I probably have one other variation on it that I think you've largely been able to avoid, which is I regularly practice before the court. Right, um, right. And so I, I have the additional complication <laughs> yes. of, you know, um, thinking about my relationship as an advocate. Right with, yes. the, with, with the with the. By the way, I think I lost that chance with the court is not a court thing. I, I will never be for, be in front of the Supreme Court. But anyway, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I, so so I, you know, I think about it a lot. I think about it probably more than I more than is healthy. Um, Me too. <laughs> and, and frankly, I mean, I have I think both consciously and subconsciously changed my tone a bit in the last couple of years. Yeah. I, you know, if I go back and look at like my Twitter or my blog posts five, six, seven, eight years ago. You know, no one could doubt where my heart was on the politics, but I wasn't like leading with that, right? Like the the politics were not the goal, right? Um, you know, I sort of I I've stayed in like legal nerd land, um, <laughs> and I think you know, there's that's that's safe territory, especially if you're like an early career person. Yes, um, but it also I think to a large degree undervalues the importance of people like you and me and others. Speaking out, even when speaking out is going to get us labeled. Um, and so, you know, it's one thing during the Obama administration when we're fighting about, you know, small sort of, you know, inch wide fights over executive power right. um, or over the affordable or, you know, maybe, you know, um, uh, uh, yard wide fights right over the Affordable Care Act. Right. But now we're fighting about the rule of law as an institution. And now yeah. we're fighting about democracy. Yeah. And it just seems to me that like. If you're not going to take off your gloves and dive in when that's what's on the line, what are you waiting for? Um, you know, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't mean to sort of tie everything back to Hamilton, but I mean this is right. Oh, I do it all the time. I tie it back to Hamilton all the time. So go ahead, please. <laughs> well, this and this is Hamilton's. You know, if it, right, like you know, if this is if 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 the Constitution is not going to get your dander up, right? If defending this is not going <laughs> to get you to commit to something, 
what are you waiting for? Right. Um, and, and, you know, I look at, I, I'm not going to name names, but I suspect that you and I would probably agree. You know, I, I look at some fairly prominent folks on the academic side in our field who have largely been laying low the last couple of years, right? Who are very restrained in their yeah. criticism of some deeply anti-democratic behavior, whether it's by the court or by elected leaders of the Republican Party. Um, and I, you know, I have said to some of them privately that I find that deeply irresponsible um, and that, you know, I understand why their instincts are to, are to keep their head down. But, you know, by the time they pick up their head, it might be too late. And so I think, you know, I think that the, the key for everyone is to figure out what your priorities are. And if I never get to argue a case in the Supreme Court again, you know, that's a price I'm willing to pay to be able to sort of be out there trying to raise the profile of some of these issues right. and trying to make a big deal out of why, why, Eric, the things you and I talk about matter. Can I ask you, we're almost out of time. Can I ask you one more question about this? Because I'm really curious about Please. your opinion. I think other law professors listening to this who are engaged in social media and media punditry in general will appreciate your views on this because I know you've thought deeply about it. So have I, but I have no answer yet. I have decided to relay to the students my strongly held views on the grounds that they'll find them anyway. It would take two minutes to figure out how where I stand on most of the leading. So my students, this one quick example, my students know I am pro-choice all the way down, but have deep skepticism about Roe and Casey. And for my progressive students, that's a big deal. And, you know, but they're going to find that out in one minute on the Internet. So I feel like I'd rather tell them in my own words, apologize, which I do, and say, I'm going to try to teach you con law. Objectively is too strong a word, but as neutrally as I can. But I can't hide my deeply held views after 30 years. What do you do in the classroom? Do you? Not only do I do exactly that, Eric, but I say, and you know what? The judges are human, too. Right. Okay. Like, I mean, the, yeah. you know, and, and, and you should understand that, like, the difference in this respect between me and a Supreme Court justice, besides the fact that they have an Article three commission and I don't, yes. is that I'm being transparent about this. Yeah. Um, right. And so I, I try very hard in both common law and federal courts to do two things at once to say, here's what the rule is. Right. Right. And here's why I think the rule is wrong. Um, right. And I am never going to, I, I do not, I, I, as a rule, I do not grade on the second part of that. Oh, of right? course. Like I want, yeah, of course. Right. Like I, I want them to come yeah. to their own conclusion. Yes. But let me tell you, you know, I will, t I will try my best to summarize the arguments on the other side. Let me tell you why I don't find those arguments persuasive and you judge for yourself. And, you know, do I doubt that the fact that it's me standing up there making those arguments is going to put a little bit of a thumb on the scale in my favor? Sure. No, but the best I can do is make sure that you see, is make sure that I'm showing you my thumb yeah. um, as opposed to hiding it. You know, Stephen, I wrote a piece in 1994 about Scalia and and Mark Tushnet, a professor at Harvard, and Mark's been a mentor to me in my entire career, where where I actually took Scalia's side on things, and um, on some things, and he was um, right sometimes. Yeah, and and academically, I had some interesting conversations, but no one knew about the article, right? I mean, there was no internet. It was in George Washington Law Review. It's a good law review, but it's not Harvard, but it was a good law review. If I wrote that same article today, I would have progressive people climbing down my throat. And my only point about any of that is the students are going to find out anyway. So I don't know. I mean, the engaged students are going to find out anyway. So hiding it feels fake to me. Is that a fair? So, uh, that, so I, I would actually take this even bigger. Eric, okay, good. Which is, 
the most the the, the when, when 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 like junior law professors ask me for advice, yeah. right? Which happens less and less as I become less and less junior every day. <laughs> um, the 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 most important piece of advice I try to give them is be yourself. Yeah. Um, that, 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 now I should say that is easier for me as a six foot eight straight white man <laughs> to say, right, than it is for a lot of other people. And I don't. And I, and I say, like, and, you know, I recognize that that there are reasons why it will be harder for some of you to be yourself than it is for me. Um, but you know, I, I I'm sure you've had this experience. I've had colleagues, right, who tried to adopt this persona in the classroom that wasn't them. Yeah. And it just never works. It it like you know. And, and so I, you know, my, my, I started, as you said, you mentioned in, in, when you introduced me that I started at the University of Miami, um, the, the second semester I was teaching, right? I was this, you know, young, dumb, 25 year old law professor. Well, not um, y- young, was, but not dumb, but go ahead. <laughs> inexperienced. Um, okay. There was a, there was a strike at Miami. Um, the, the, all the custodial workers, um, on campus went on strike. Wow. Um, and I refused to cross the picket line. Um, you know, I come from a, I come from a, a, a sort of a labor law family. Like, yeah. you know, you don't cross picket lines. Right. Um, I still held class, right, which was actually technically crossing the picket line, but I held it off campus. Right. Um, so that it, and I didn't punish people who couldn't attend. So that there was no, no one was required to cross a picket line to come to class. Right. Um, and I, I decided to blog about it. Like, I decided to act, like, instead of just doing it, I actually decided to create a record <laughs> of why I was doing it, of what I thought the counter arguments are, of what, of why I had rejected the counter arguments, and of what my thought process was about the decision making, um, in a very sort of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther, okay, Martin Luther, yeah. like here I stand, I can do no other, you know, kind of mentality. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I, to this day, I have no idea, sort of, um, whether that helped my career or hurt my career, but it was who I was, right. um, and and you know, it was it was it was all I could do in that moment was to make a decision that was best to me and then explain to everybody why I was making it right. and ask them not to agree with me, but at least to accept that I had a principled reason for doing it. And, and at the risk of bringing things full circle, um, this is your and my, I think, critique of the Supreme Court increasingly in the shadow docket context, yes. which is, you know, the justices don't expect us to agree with them. They expect us to agree that what they're doing is judicial. Right. And, you know, when they're not writing, right? We don't know. So, so I, you know, this is sort of broader, but it's like be yourself and explain yourself and be transparent because that's how you create. That's how you convince people not that you're right, but that you're principled. Exactly, Stephen. And I've been saying for a long time, reasonable people can disagree, and they can over issues yeah. like abortion and affirmative action and campaign finance yeah. reform. Which means reasonable judges can disagree. All I want them is to be as transparent as they can about the reasons why they're deciding the way they did. You're describing why you did what you did. Um, I think absolutely helped your career, not in the advancement of your career in terms of getting jobs and stuff. I think I think every time we act at some peril by being ourselves, it advances our career. Um, and I know that line very, unfortunately, all too well. Um, but, I, but, I, but I do think, you, I, I really respect the transparency part of that story. Um, and, and I think John, and just to bring it totally full circle, I think Harlan was very transparent about what he was doing. Yeah. Um, sometimes I disagreed with it. Sometimes I agreed with it. But I think it was always transparent. I don't think that's true for this current court. And that's a, and that's a shame. And I think we, we – should we end on that note? <laughs>
Yeah. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Um, This was awesome. Uh, I can't wait to read your book. Um, uh, If if you want to send me your draft in advance, I'd love to read it. Um, But if not, I'll read it when everybody else does. Um, And thank you for doing – I say this on behalf of a lot of um, people. Thank you for doing your work on the shadow docket. It's really important. I say that as a citizen, not a law professor. So thank you for doing that. I, I appreciate that, Eric. And Eric, thank you for doing what you do. I mean, I, I think, you know, well, you too can, I think, sit back and take a little bit of credit um, well, as more and more people are coming to realize that what you've been arguing for the better part of your career is, in fact, true. Well, thank you, Stephen. And thanks so much. And I really appreciate you coming on Supreme Myths. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. Yeah.